Well, good evening. It is good to be with you all this evening. I'm sure you all know what today is. It's a special day for Father's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day for all of you. For me, every Sunday is a special day. Every Sunday is a holiday where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. You could be a thousand different places, and yet you are here with us. The first thing I wonder is, how do you feel about that? I was reading a book to my children about uh, St. Patrick, and it talks about how he would come to church, and he would look out, and he would look at the grass and the woods, and he would want to be there. And when they were doing the Apostles' Creed and things of that sort, he would sneak out and run with the deer. Hopefully that's not your attitude. You all look like adults. You probably didn't want to be here. You wouldn't be here. So why are you here this evening, and how do you feel about being here? I can tell you for myself that I rejoice to be here. I thank God that I am here. I love to be with God's people and hear God's word. The question is, why? Why is that, that I want to be here? Hopefully that you want to be here and be worshiping God on his Lord's day. And the answer is, we're going to find in this passage, that if that is the case, if you are the type of person who loves to be at God's place on God's day in God's time, it's probably because God has done something to you, because that is not certainly not the attitude of the unbeliever. The unbeliever never wants to be here, or if they do, they have alternative motives. So in light of all that, please open your Bibles to 1 John Chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's look at verse 1 again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the truth in this passage is the most wonderful truth in all of the world. This is what we refer to as the truth of the gospel. This is the story of the little despised servant girl who had some stepsisters who beat her up and treated her very bad, and now she becomes a princess. You may know that story. Or this is the story of a kissed toad who becomes a prince or a kid who grew up in the slums and the projects and he becomes one of the richest men of the world or a man who has no legs and becomes an Olympic athlete. What am I saying here? This is the gospel where those who have not become those who have and those who have become those who have not. This process of the transformation of a toad to a prince, of a servant to a queen, of the spies becoming the exalted is called conversion 
or regeneration. And our passage tells us how that process comes. No, you do not need to kiss a toad or to make a prince fall in love with you at a ball or anything of the sort, but rather we need to do, in the words of John 1.12, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what we need to do to get converted, to get changed, to get transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to inherit all things, is to receive Christ. And how do we receive Christ? By believing and entrusting and giving yourself over to him. To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You have to be in Christ, but if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old man has died and the new man has replaced him. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered, that's Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a transfer of identity, of association, of connection. I think about Pilgrim's Progress when Christian fights Apollyon. And you remember the scene where Apollyon comes up to Christian and he first tries to persuade him to return back to the city of destruction. And Christian says, I don't like your labor. I don't like your laws. And your wages you pay with death. Get away from me, Apollyon. That is really what's happened to us, that we have transferred from the city of destruction, and we have moved over to the city of the beloved King Jesus Christ. And that's good news. That is wonderful news. That is the best news. The best news is that we can go from being part of the domain or dominion of Satan and be transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God, that we can be brought into the family of God. That's what it means to be a child. We say that we are children of God. What does that mean? Well, part of it means that you are no longer part of the family of Satan. You are no longer associated with him. But now you are associated, part of the family, the entourage of Christ. But there's something else that's connected to this idea of sonship. And that connection is being an heir. A son is an heir, unless he becomes disinherited. But normally, if you have riches, treasure prestige, things to, that you have gained in this life, you give it to your child when you pass away. I'm sure you all remember the scene of Abraham, where you see the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, but later on, God speaks to Abraham, and Abraham says, well, God says to Abraham, I'm your shield. He says, what will you give to me? I have no son. My heir is this slave. We see the concept that your child would naturally become your heir. And so, too, is in this concept of being a son of God. To be a son of God is to become heir with God. And you can see this concept found explicitly in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.16 says this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with God. Christ. So hopefully you see the idea. God is heir of all things. Everything belongs to God. Everything is being transferred to God. God is renewing and restoring and completing his creation or cleaning up the creation that has been ruined 
by Satan in the fall. And as God is heir of all things, he shares everything that belongs to him with his son, Jesus Christ. And so God is heir, and Christ is also heir with his father. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is as we become united with Christ, we also inherit what Christ inherits. And since Christ inherits all things, then we become co-heirs with Christ, and we also will inherit all things. Now, what exactly fits under the category of all things? Everything. The Bible explicitly tells us what the inheritance of Christ will be. And remember, the inheritance of Christ is your inheritance. And we see that spelled out in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 says this. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's Christ, by the way, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. There's the language of sonship. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now here it is. What does Christ get for his sonship? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The question is, has Christ asked for those things? Well, I read the end of the book. And the answer is certainly he asked, asked his father for these things. The nations will be his heritage. The ends of the earth will be his possessions. He will gain all of the nations. He will redeem people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Great Commission will be completed. And so the inheritance is all of creation, and so too, if Christ will gain all of creation, so too we, as co-heirs with Christ, will gain all of creation. Now, isn't that an amazing idea? Amazing concept, that we will gain all things. Put it differently, your inheritance is all of reality. This reminds me of a passage in Genesis, Genesis chapter 13, where the Lord says to Abraham, right after Lot had separated from him, he told Abraham this. He said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breath, and the land, for I will give it to you. Now, I just want you to use some sanctified imagination for a second, and just imagine the scene here. Imagine the Lord saying this to you, you standing up on a high mountain, you looking out, and him telling you, look, eastward, northward, southward, westward, all that you see, this all will belong to you. That actually is what God tells us. Abraham Kuyper once said this famous quote. It's actually his most famous quote, at least in North America. There's not one square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. Isn't that a beautiful quote? There's nothing that belongs to Satan. There's nothing that belongs to you. All of it belongs to Christ. Amen. But we can also say there's not one square inch that I also cannot say belongs to me in Christ Jesus because all that he will have 
he will share with us. This is the promise. This is the benefit of being a child of God. Now, again, who shall receive this? Everyone? No. Only the children of God will be co-heirs with God. So the question is, how do we become a child of God? Is this a special privilege only given to certain saints who are specially good? No. Look again at our verse, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone means everyone. Everyone who believes, everyone who meets this qualification, we can make this an if-then statement. If you believe, then you will be a child of God. And if you're a child of God, then you will, by necessity, be an heir. And these promises belong to you. This is good news. But hopefully, all of you believe, right? Hopefully, you can see in your heart right now that you are putting your trust and your hope in Christ. And if you can see that in your heart and the Spirit is testifying with your spirit that you're a child of God, then you can also see with the eyes of faith that which you cannot see, namely that every square inch of this world belongs to you. All of it. So don't be jealous of unbelievers. Don't be jealous of your neighbor's house. Don't be jealous of anything that you're tempted to be jealous of. It all belongs to Christ. And that means it all belongs to you. This is the promise of the gospel. Now our passage goes on to tell us the responsibilities we have to our fellow heirs. Because guess what? It's not just that you that are an heir individually, but all the people of God are heirs collectively. And so our passage goes on to tell us our responsibility toward them. It says this at the latter part of verse 1. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So our responsibility to each other or to believers is to love them. Here's the idea. If you love God the Father, you will love all of his children. And if you do not love his children, then you do not love him. I want you to imagine a scene. Actually, I know a lady who actually just prayed for her, where she is tragically going through a divorce. She has two children, and she's looking for a new husband, a new father for these children. And imagine a scene where a lady like this, who has two small children, is courting a man, and the man says, I love you, but I sure don't like your children. How do you think that's going to work? You think it's going to work really well? Sure. Just get rid of the children, just me, me and you? No. That's not how it's going to work. You cannot say you love somebody and say, but I despise your children. If you do, that relationship is probably not going to go very far. And this is the same way it is with God. That I was just reading in the Proverbs that talk about grandchildren are the crown of the aged. And it says that a father's glory or a child's glory is his father. That this is the things that are most special to us. Someone once, when I was reading that passage to them, I was talking about <clears throat> how proud, or they were talking about how proud a grandfather is of their children. Now, maybe some of you are grandfathers and can confirm this, of how you always, you're proud of them and you love them. And there's this glory in them that you take pride in them. Or those of us who are not yet grandparents, but parents probably feel the same way. If you look at my phone, you'll see a picture of my daughter on that phone. Why? Because she is my glory. That is where my heart is. And that is the same way that God feels about his children. That is where his heart is in his children. The point is that you will not go very far with God if you do not go very far with his children. If you say, I love God, but I hate his people, God says you rely on the truth is not in you. 
In Psalm chapter 16, verse 3, it says this, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all of my delights. Now, the speaker in Psalm 16 is actually a believer, but it's also true of God. God delights in his children, and we should delight as well in his children. That's exactly what we see in Psalm 16.3. The saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all of my delight. So the question is, do we delight in the people of God? Does our heart sing when we see people serving the Lord? Is there a connection between us and other believers that we so overjoyed to see people doing right and see people serving our Father? That should be the direction of our heart. It's not something that we should have to conjure up inside of us. Yes, we sometimes have to encourage ourselves in that direction, but it should just naturally overflow inside of our hearts that there is a love and affection for the people of God. Let's look to verse number two. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. That's kind of an interesting phrase. I wouldn't really expect it. I would think it would say, by this we know that we love God. But it didn't say that. It says, by this we know we love the children of God. A little bit surprising there. It's a little different. It's not saying, by this we know that we love God, but rather, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandment. So the question is, how do we know that we're loving the people of God? Because talk is cheap. Anybody can say that they love the children of God when, in fact, they do not love God. And we have two ideas of how we can know we love the children of God. The first is that we love God. The second is that we obey his commandment. So the question is, how does that connect it, though? How is it that if we love God, then we know we love the children of God? Or how is it that if we obey his commandments, then we know that we love the children of God? So let's look at, let's take this one at a time. The first way that we know that we love the children of God, that's each other, is that we love God. Now, here's the connection. If you do not love God, you will not love his people. Why? Because his people have the scent, the flavor, and the resemblance of God. And so if you do not love God, then when you see God in other people, you will recoil from that. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. I want you to imagine somebody that you despise, that you hate, that you cannot stand. Everything about them. You just get under your skin. This is a person where nightmares are made. Okay? Now imagine that this person now has a child. And this child resembles the person that you despise. They smile like that person. They talk like that person. They cut you off in traffic like that person. They're just like that person. How do you think you're going to react toward that child? In the same way that you are going to react to the parent, right? And even when they do things that are maybe neutral... They chew like that person. They smell like that person. It's going to remind you of that other person that you despise, and you're going to despise and hate the resemblance. Does that make sense? Can everybody put themselves in that situation? They smell like that person you remember, and you think, i got to get away from you, because this brings back bad memories. Now, let's change the analogy. Let's go from the person that you despise to the person that you love. Some people call this their honeydew. The person that makes their heart sing. And you see their child. And their child remembers, that resembles that person that you love. Maybe this is your wife. Hopefully this is your wife. For your woman, hopefully this is your husband. And they smell like them. 
and they act like them, and they chew like them, and they talk like them, and they don't cut you off in traffic like them. How does your heart feel? There's something that inside of you that should be full of joy and happiness, that you love the resemblance, that you love seeing your child that's a male, or even female for that matter, resemble your spouse. It's a beautiful thing. It makes your heart sing. Now, what's the difference between seeing the resemblance and recoiling and seeing the resemblance and rejoicing? The difference is how you feel about the person the resemblance has in the first place. If you love the person, seeing the resemblance makes your heart sing. If you hate the person, seeing the resemblance makes your heart recoil. Does that make sense? This is exactly what's going on in this passage, that if you want to love the people of God in a really self-sufficient way and not just trying to conjure this up and engineer this in a fake way, is to love God. If you love God, you love his people. If you hate God, you hate his people. Every time. Always. It really is just that simple. Now, the second expression tells us how we will love the children of God. First, we must love God. Second, we must obey his commandments. Now, this is quite interesting because, again, this is supposed to be telling us how we love the children of God, not how we love God. So we love the children of God by obeying God's commandments. So what's going on here? The first way is very simple. The first way that we can know that we love the children of God, again, as I already said, is we love God. And the way that we can know we love God is by obeying his commandments. Right? You can say you love God all you want. In fact, I bet you, if you went door-to-door evangelism, knocking on some doors... Do you love God? I'm sure you get a few atheists out there, a few people that just kick you off their lawn. But if a few people would actually answer this question, you'd probably get a lot of people that say, yeah, I love God, right? Most people don't go around self-conscious of their hatred toward God. In fact, a lot of people, you talk about do you hate anybody, they say no. You examine their life for any period of time, you see the target's cheap, and in fact, they're full of hate. But that's not the point. The point is, most people will claim that they love God. But Jesus, in our passage, we even looked at this. I think Neil was looking at my notes this morning. But uh, in our passage this morning, John chapter 14, verse 15, it says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Authenticate your love through reality. Anyone can say they love God, but the question is, are you making any real attempt to obey his commandments? And if you're not making any real attempt, then you're a phony and you're cheap. And you're just simply lying. So the first way, the first connection here is if we love God, we'll keep his commandments. And if we love God, we'll love his children. And that's the connection between this statement, we obey his commandments. The second idea, though, is this is how we love our neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? The way you feel like loving your neighbor? Or the way that God tells you to love your neighbor? Remember the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the way that you can know if you're truly loving your neighbor or in our passage, if you're loving the children of God, is if you're obeying his commandments. Now you know his commandments. What are his commandments? Hopefully you children, you know this answer. What are his commandments? Well, let's think about the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not hate. Do not slander. Do not be a meanie, you children. Don't do unkind things to each other. Do not commit adultery. Do not lust after one another. Do not walk around with no clothes on and tempt your neighbor. Do not steal. Do not cheat. Do not lie. Do not mislead. Do not covet. And do not be a jealous person toward your neighbor. This is how you love your neighbor. 
is by not doing all these things, not murdering them, not stealing from them, not slandering them, not lying against them, not coveting all of their stuff and being a jealous, hateful type of person. But it goes beyond that. It's not just not doing all those negative things, but it's doing positive things too. It's, it's helping your neighbor when they're in need. First John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? It's helping your neighbor. In the words of Matthew 25, it's visiting your brother while they're in jail. It's feeding them while they're hungry. It's rejoicing with them when they rejoice. It's weeping with them while they weep. It's washing your neighbor's feet. And all the examples that Neil gave about how to do that. It's watching the kids in nursery when you don't want to. We can go on and on, but loving your neighbor looks like obeying the commands of God. And guess what? The Bible is full of commands. Just read it. There's all types of imperatives, and there's implied imperatives throughout this book telling you how to love your neighbor. And that's how you love your neighbor, by obeying God's word, by not doing wrong to them and by doing right to them. Let's continue on. Verse 3. By this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Excuse me. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Amen? Is his commandments burdensome? Are you going around saying, woe is me? I can't do drugs. I can't ruin my life. I can't commit adultery and break my wife's heart. I can't destroy my family. I can't murder my neighbor and go to jail. Is that your attitude? Hopefully not. I can't be a lover of money and never be satisfied. I can't covet and forever be miserable. Poor me. Being righteous is just so terrible. You know, sometimes people have that attitude. Poor you. Poor me. It's so terrible. I have to show up to church and be fed so that I can fight the world, the flesh, and the devil every single week. Poor you. Hopefully not. Hopefully that is not your attitude. Hopefully you see that God's ways are better. Is that true? Aren't God's ways better? Isn't God's ways the ways of life and health and vitality and joy? And you'll know that if your heart is right. You'll not look at the drunk. I go to the drug rehabilitation all the time. I hate drugs. You know why? Because I see what drugs do. I hate pornography. You know why? Because I see and counsel women and see the destruction that it brings. Hopefully you feel the same way, right? Sin is evil. Sin is ugly. It's destructive. It's evil. It's not good. David said this. He didn't say, woe is me. I have to follow the Lord. He says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That is the heart of the believer. That's the heart of David. Hopefully that's your heart. That you delight in God's truth. That you remember his commandments because your heart is inclined toward him. And you don't feel that his laws are burdensome, but rather his laws are the path of life, vitality, and joy. That message right there, if you get that, it'll change your life. God's laws are not burdensome, but they are the path of joy. You can take it from me and take it from God's word, or you can try the other way and just be stubborn and go through pain, misery, suffering, and then on the other side realize that what I'm telling you is true because it's not my words, but it's God's truth that God is a great doctor who gives you the prescription and says, don't be a fool. Don't be an idiot. Follow me. 
I am the creator. I am the owner. I have given you a manual. Follow me, and it will lead to paths of life in this life and in the next. God's laws are not burdensome, and if you feel that way, look at your heart. But often we get that holistically, but the question is, do you get that particularly? In the Westminster Confession, it says that we should confess our sins in particular and particularly. I love that expression. In particular and particularly. How do we feel about God's law, not just holistically, but in particular? Where is the devil telling us in certain areas that God is withholding good from us and that God's law is actually not good and he's trying to keep you back from blessing? That's the lie of the devil. The devil didn't say that God was holistically evil. He said in this one area, God is trying to hold back a blessing from you. Believe me, do not believe God. What area are you listening to the devil in? Well, he's telling you, God is not good. His ways are not good. Follow me. Whatever that is, examine your own heart and repent. Turn back to God. This is the attitude, ultimately, of the unbeliever. Do you know why your unbelieving neighbor refuses to come to church, refuses to believe in God? It's not because of your apologetic method. It's not because you're not more persuasive. not because of anything else. It has nothing to do with you, actually. Well, it could. But primarily, it's not you. Primarily, it's their love for sin. John three nineteen and 20 says this, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their evil deeds should be exposed. This is the heart of the unbeliever. God's law are, is burdensome. They do not like it. They do not love it. And they recoil from it. Now let's finish our passage. We only have a few minutes. We're wrapping up soon. Look at verse 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, I'm really sad that we have so run out of time. Because this is probably my favorite passage in all of 1 John. This passage is amazing. It is beautiful. The truth in this passage is incredible. My second favorite passage was actually the one we just preached on. God's law is not burdensome. This is a, a glorious passage because it answers a question that I had at a very young age. I remember I was maybe eight or nine. I asked my parents, what is the purpose of life? Here it is. This passage is answering that. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, the one question everybody knows, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is your purpose. That is why you're here. What are you doing here? Are you here to just entertain yourself to death? To eat, 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 and then die? No. You're here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In the words of Ecclesiastes 13 and 14, the end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. According to Ecclesiastes, what is the purpose? To fear God. You cannot fear what you do not believe in. It's to believe in God. And after you believe in him, to obey him. This is your purpose. Fear God, believe in him, and then obey him. Jesus said this in Mark eight thirty six. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is the victory. The victory is not your fasting. The victory is not your church attendance. The victory is not your wealth, your career, your 401k account, or anything else. 
The victory is finding Jesus. Victory in Christ. That's the victory. What is the reason you're here? The reason you're here is to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to get connected to God. We got kicked out of Eden. We're trying to get back. And in between your very small life, the purpose of you being here is to glorify God. And how can you glorify God? By repenting, by fearing him, by turning your life over to him. And once you have done this, you have gained the victory. This is amazing to think about this, right? Some of us are older. Some of us are younger. Some of us have many years left. Some of us have few years left. But guess what? If you have put your faith in Jesus, you've already won the victory. I love sports and board games. I love competition. I just love competition. I don't like any sports like Pastor Shane. He liked to bike. I don't like biking. I don't want to bike by myself. I bike with you and try to beat you, but I'm not biking by myself because I like competition. And I love the flavor and the feeling of victory, of winning. I don't want to play unless I win. And I like, even when I lose, like Jim over there beating me in ping pong, I keep training until I can beat him one day. I will. I love victory. And interesting enough, sometimes when you're playing sports, there's good sportsmanship, bad sportsmanship. But interesting enough, sometimes in sports, even when you haven't won officially, there's that point where you know it's over, right? That you just know, you might as well just quit. It's over. And I've been in, recently been watching this thing called professional arm wrestling. And this happens too. It's a very interesting sport. And you'll see these ginormous guys just struggling and struggling. And eventually, even before the other guys pinned them, you could just look at the, the guy's face and it's over. And then he pins them. Well, that's where we're at right now. Right? The devil has been struggling against us, against Christ. And he's out of gas. When you convert to Jesus Christ, the devil will continue to struggle against you, but he's out of gas. It's over. He's about to be penned. That's where we are. You have won the victory. You have overcome the world if you have believed in Jesus. Otherwise, you are penned under Satan. You're done. Either you've won or you lost, and you have to see the eyes of faith to hold on to this, that if you have come to Jesus, even though the world of flesh and the devil is still struggling against you, it's over. You've won in Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that we have victory in Jesus. We don't have victory in ourselves. We can't beat the devil, the world, the flesh. In fact, we have lived an entire life of the devil beating us and making a mockery of us. But we pray, we praise you that you are the champion. You are the mighty victor who has defeated sin, death, hell, and everything and has given to us freely when we come to you. Lord, I pray that every single one of the people in this room would have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They would not view his commandments as burdensome. They would not view your news as bad news, but see that you have made the victory possible and you have given to us freely in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.